Hello, it's 30th of September 2017, and this is episode 43 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star's news, analysis, and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. So, how's your week in Star Wars being, Kirsty? It's been really good. I just finished reading Phasma, and mm-hmm. I'm really excited to talk about that and Leia today. Awesome, same. Yeah, um, my story is very similar in that I've literally just finished Leia. I like isolated myself in a lovely, quiet cafe for much of the afternoon so I could really storm through that last 100 pages. And I'm really glad I did because it just has such a gut punch of an ending and it's a really great book. Mm-hmm. Um, we skipped the podcast last week, it needs to be said, just because it was so dead. <laughs> there was almost nothing happening and... I think it was that I had finished Phasma but not started Leia and Kirsty had finished Leia but not started Phasma. So we wanted to wait until we'd both finished both books and now we have. So we're here to have a full discussion about both of them. And that of course will mean spoilers. So if you do want to listen to this discussion, then I would say please only do so if you have either read the books if you really have no intention of reading the books and just want to hear our thoughts and get the lowdown on what they involve and what the key points are, like I'd imagine that listening to a spoiler discussion would be kind of hard to follow though unless you actually know the books. So yeah, basically my advice is read the books. I think Leia is better than Phasma, but I definitely think they're both quite strong and they're definitely both enjoyable. So yeah, I'd say read both of them. Like, Would you recommend both of them, Kirsty? Yeah, I would recommend both of them. I think Leia wins out for me because um, I'm more attached to the character, obviously. So I was mm. more excited about it initially. Um, Phasma, as we'll get to in our discussion, introduces a lot of great new characters. But um, oh, I just hate Phasma. <laughs> it, it, yeah. Maybe it's fulfilling its purpose and then it's getting me really amped up to see her get her just desserts in The Last Jedi if that's what happens yeah um, and that's what you know they're probably going to do with some of their villains right because um, they can't all be sympathetic brooding types like Kylo yeah um, but yeah it's just like oh my god this character is so horrible <laughs> that's just the big conundrum with Phasma for me the fact that it has a big picture of her face on the cover and it's called Phasma but she really does feel like quite a minimal part of the book. It's very strange. Um, but yeah, we will get into that more in our proper full discussion, which is still to come. Um, in the meantime, I would like to beg you sincerely for iTunes ratings and reviews. And thank you so much to everyone who has reviewed so far. I know last time we did the podcast, um, we like were close to reaching some milestone, weren't we? In terms yeah. of iTunes reviews. Yeah, we were close to 100 ratings, and now we have more than that. So thank you very much to everyone who left one in the last couple of weeks. Oh, um, exciting. Yeah, we've had some really great reviews as well. And I wanted to thank the the guys at Greedo Shot First. It's a Star Wars podcast who have recommended us a couple times on their show, uh, with the caveat that we are Raylo shippers, of course, <laughs> because <laughs> not everyone likes that, but um, they felt that our analysis was great and worth sharing with their listeners, so... Thank you for sending some listeners our way. Yeah. No, I listened to their latest show and I really enjoyed it. So, and yeah, I really appreciate the shout out. So thanks guys. 
Um, yeah, and if you have questions for the podcast, please do email them to scavengershorde at gmail.com. I don't think we're going to get to questions this time, but we are getting a few trickling in now. So I'll probably save them up until we have a good amount of interesting ones, and then we'll have another like mailbag segment in the upcoming show. So yes. Um, right, I think we should just focus purely on the books for this episode, because... There have been trips and drabs of news, like Donald Gleason said some nice things about J.J. Abrams, and there's rumours swirling about the runtime of The Last Jedi, but they're either like a bit fluffy or they're very like shaky and it's not clear if they're reliable. So, yeah, like I really don't think it's worth discussing them because I don't think there's much to say. Um, would you agree with that, Kirsty? Yeah, I mean, this week has been light on the news, but because there's been all this content... There's still plenty of other things for us to discuss, so I think exactly. the same will be true for next week as well. There's lots coming down the pipeline, so yeah, I think like the momentum is really going to pick up as soon as October starts. So this is really the perfect time to have this discussion because it's like the calm before the storm when there's actually like a an opportunity to have a nice meaty chat about this. Um, so right with Phasma, I think that the best place to start is going to be to talk about what did we like the most about the book so what parts of it did we feel were the strongest like what were your favorite elements of the book Kirsty? i really like characters of v and is it v or vi i don't know uh let's go for vi okay uh vi and cardinal and especially cardinal because you kind of have more of a chance to look into his frame of mind at least it seems like that as the book goes on more um Mm. Yeah, I just thought they were great original characters. Like, I'd love to see more of them in another book sometimes, if that's possible. Yeah. Um, so it seemed like the it was a framing device, right? That to have um, this whole setup with Cardinal trying to get some information on Phasma so we can take her down. Phasma wasn't really the point of the book. It was mm. more like that was a way to showcase this interesting developing dynamic between this resistance soldier and the Cardinal. Um, who's, yeah, supposedly Phasma's equal, but doesn't quite seem to feel that way. So yeah. it's very interesting to kind of get that look at the First Order as well, because it seems a lot more chaotic and cutthroat than maybe it does just from the glimpses we got in The Force Awakens. Yeah, no, definitely. It's really um, like interesting to me how almost everything in Phasma is more interesting than Phasma herself. <laughs> <laughs> She's just the kind of villain that's not... I get you need those kind of villains, right? Because they, you ha- always have to have a villain who is irredeemable and yeah. is just ruthless and badass because you have to have those stakes. You have to have this danger. Mm. Um, and I, I do think it's good to have this as a setup for The Last Jedi because we've talked before about how in The Force Awakens they didn't really quite execute on that for Phasma. Like, yes, yeah, she was kind of bland and badass, but then you have things like, well, why did she lower the shields? And the book itself seems to be a good way of kind of explaining around that. Yeah. Because she has no loyalty besides to herself. Yeah. Yeah, no, I actually felt that was quite neat because, like you say, it did make that a logical decision because I think that the impression the rest of The Force Awakens gives you is that Phasma is totally loyal and totally dedicated to the First Order. But the message that's being conveyed in the book is that that's all a front. 
that she's putting on in order to survive and in order to advance through the ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so when she does that act of huge cowardice in shutting down the shields, um, that suddenly makes much more sense as an act of pure selfishness. Yeah, and I agree with you for the strengths. I absolutely loved the framing story. That was easily the best part of the book to me. And I found those characters really intriguing and fascinating, especially the interplay between them. I'll actually tell you what it reminded me of. It reminded me of A Thousand and One Nights and the whole framing device of Shahrazad telling the king's stories to delay her own execution because in the fairy tale he kills his wife in the morning. And so she keeps on delaying her execution by just telling him these irresistibly intriguing stories so that he can't possibly kill her because he needs to know how they turn out. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Nice reference. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, like, Star Wars is a big fairy tale. And Mm -hmm. if Star Wars overall is a huge collection of fairy tales, then Phasma is definitely the Star Wars take on Shahrazad. Yeah, I I really loved the way it like gradually unfolded this connection between them because at first you think how how the hell could these characters find common ground, you know? Mm. Like they're diametrically opposed in their beliefs and neither one seems to want to back down and they're both trying to play each other to get this information and for her to stay alive. Yeah. But there are these little hints earlier on that she's like, "Oh, he has kind eyes when he takes his mask off and mm. and he's kind of like displaying these weird moments of concern for her even though it doesn't make any sense yeah. and that he's obviously not used to being in this role as interrogator so it's it's so cool to see that develop yeah because it tells you a lot about Vi herself as well because you sense what a great observer she is and how clever she is at manipulating people according to her observations she's almost like a little bit Sherlock Holmesian because she can pick up so much <laughs> yeah. just from like watching his body language and gestures and like picking apart his language and yeah I think that tells you a lot about both the characters like simultaneously so yeah like all the interactions between them were just a joy to read yeah and you she's manipulative like you say but to it's clear by the end that she has genuinely become to to care about him and realizes that he is more than he first appears. Like she says things like, "Oh, I think you're actually a good man under all that vicious red armor." Mm. So it ha- it is like they've come to an understanding and seen these things in each other that surprise them. And um, yeah, she's just decided that she cares about this man even after all these terrible things he's done to her. Yeah, so it's pretty remarkable. But yeah, like you say, Star Wars is a fairy tale, so it does that. Yeah. No, it's really really cool and. Yeah, like like say, my main thought upon finishing Phasma was, God, I would love to find out what happens to these characters next. Because I really want to see, um, like, if Cardinal does go with Vi to the Resistance, or if, like, she takes him somewhere else. Because mm. when she's making him the offer, like, she gives him lots of choices. She says he can go with her to the Resistance and become an infor- informant, like, and basically tell them like all these like insider first order secrets or that she can just like take him to an outer rim planet and that he can start again so she gives him this like exceptional freedom really (laughs) in order to choose his own destiny which is something he hasn't ever really had because the backstory of the character is that he grew up on Jakku and as we've seen on Jakku is hopeless there's no chances you're not gonna advance in life because it's a complete dustbin of a world essentially 
And then when he was taken by the First Order, again, his fate was very rigid and pre-assigned because everything in the First Order is so hierarchical and there's like very fixed pathways through that organisation. So Vi is basically offering him real choices for the first time in his life. And I really want to see what he would do with those choices and how Vi would like figure into them. Yeah, I would like to think that they stay together like if people can't tell I am low-key shipping these characters at this point (laughs) yes um because they have that connection now because she took that chance and saved him like she could have just escaped right Mm. and I thought it was really cool the way that she comes to get him she's in the stormtrooper uniform it's almost like a twisted parallel of a new hope Mm. um and yeah that she says like I'm infinitely hopeful I still think you can be flipped that tells that she ends up being right somehow and that he's going to help her um, because he owes her at that point, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and I know she says that she has to go back to Panassas and, and save Siv and her mm. child. So maybe that that's what they do presumably because he needs a med bay. Yeah. The, the thing that worries me about that point is that he's told Phasma where he got the knife and everything. So she's going to go back to her home planet. And what if she like catches up with them or something? Well, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. I was thinking, God, rather than have that long ass flashback to Panossus and like tell like these various like interludes about them getting captured by bandits and whatever, it'd be so much more interesting to me if that whole section were much, much shorter and then like the vast majority of the book were with Vi and Cardinal and that you actually made Phasma a more significant character in the book's present by having her chase after them back to Panossus and like try to eliminate them because the book makes it very clear that Phasma tries to eliminate anyone who knows incriminating secrets about her past Mm. and Cardinal and Vi obviously know highly incriminating information about her past so they would be big targets for her she would want to wipe them off the board and I think that would have created much higher stakes and much more dramatic interest if that had been the story I'm sure there's good reasons why that wasn't but that just felt like a bit of a wasted opportunity to me because for me to move into the weaker things Mm. of the book, the things that I like less, I really found that huge long flashback to Parnassus way too elongated and way too strung out. How how did you feel about that, Kirsty? No, I agree. Like I get why it had to be that way because you really had to show this build up with um, Siv and Torben and everyone else so that Phasma's betrayal would hit you as hard as it did that mm. she was so callous to take Frey but just leave Siv there like yeah. that was awful like even yeah. though you could you could see it coming and you could understand why Brendel was so cold like why would why should he care about Siv but just the way Phasma just turned and left her and was like yeah he's right you're weak um because they had been through so much together and then at the end when you find out like how Phasma even joined the sire Oh my god, it's just so horrible. Like yeah. what she does to her brother and to her parents, it's like, wow, you are a monster. And I yeah. guess that's what Cardinal says to her, and she's like, everyone's a monster. Like she, she just seems to be more machine than person. Like she just does not care about anyone. Yeah, the heavy implication I think for that character is that there's just something really innate in her that makes her this awful, vindictive, callous person, because is not like it's purely to do with her environment. Obviously, it's heavily influenced by her environment, but everyone around her grew up in the same environment and they are not on that level. 
Yeah, they draw an emphasis on how tight knit the clan was because they had yeah. to, they had to rely on each other, right? Yeah, and exactly. she just bulldozes through all of that and does not care. Yeah, so she's really shown to be like an exception to that, um, a horrible exception. <laughs> um, and yeah, that was quite striking to me. It was also a bit frustrating because I, I kind of like to understand more about why characters become like they are, but I and I really feel like we never got that with Phasma because we never truly get like a proper deep intimate look into that character because it's always her being observed from like the third person Mm. so it's someone's like recollections of her from a distance like there's some chapters where you're only following the narrative because there's like security footage that is being described you know and that is not going to give you like much psychology of the character but I guess that's not really the point of the book. The point isn't really to understand Phasma and like her heartbreaking tale that led to her becoming so selfish. The point is just to appreciate that, yep, she's utterly ruthless, utterly selfish, utterly unforgiving and without compassion. And she should be feared and destroyed if possible. Yeah, I guess the one point of real humanity you get from Phasma is when she's just left the planet and... um Brendel destroys things in front of her and she's like shaking yeah um but even that it's kind of a precursor to her getting her revenge on him yeah um so it's not like oh she cares so much about everyone in her clan who just died there and then they've left Civ it's that oh he just did this to drive a point home to me that I need to obey the first order now um and that's just not going to happen yeah yeah I mean she's she's chilling like yeah, it, she it achieves what it's supposed to do because she's obviously clearly supposed to be that kind of villain. Um, but like you say, I prefer villains where you can kind of see where they're coming from. So the fact that you have her, you have a brother right there, like if anything, if he was raised in that manner, he would be the same. But instead, he's absolutely horrified by what she does. Yeah. And is just intimidated into submission. So... I think that one of the worst things that she does is killing her own niece or like presumably giving orders for her to be killed somehow because yeah. like it's implied that she gets rid of Frey mm-hmm. and just utter callousness of that. It's really awful to me. Although I must say it did strike me that if Phasma was so intent on making sure that there was no one around who knew the details of her background or personal history, I think she was very sloppy about that. Because <laughs> A, why take Frey with you in the first place when Frey obviously knows about her background, even though she's a small child? Because she does end up killing her, but it takes her like 10 years or whatever <laughs> until she yeah. does it. And then after she battles Cardinal at the end of the book, she doesn't make sure that he's dead. He's obviously very, very severely injured, but she's just kind of like, we're done here. <laughs> she just I think, yeah, off. I think that shows her arrogance, right? That, at that yeah. point, she really does believe that she's unstoppable and that he is so weak. Like she calls him a coward and she's disgusted by him. She's just like, it is going to be her arrogance that's her downfall, I think. Yeah. And yeah, like I'm really excited to see a showdown between her and Finn now. Yeah. Um, because like, even though Finn obviously isn't in the book, you you get the sense that he is because Cardinal's constantly thinking about his children, right? Yeah. Um, and he's thinking about the children who've gone missing before, who questioned the Sims and pushed back against the programming. So we know now that there is this precedent that in even though Finn might have been the first to defect and actually help the resistance, um, there there are these exceptions to the rule. Yeah, so totally. That's, that's super interesting. 
Um, another thing I'm really interested to see w- with this in regards to how it fits with The Last Jedi is how Phasma and Hux's relationship might develop if they end up sharing some screen time because mm. this really paints the idea of them being like in cahoots, right? Because she kills his father and he knows about it and wanted it to happen and everything. Yeah. But then she's partly responsible in a huge way for Starkiller Base being destroyed. Yeah. So is he going to find out about that and then their their team team up like <laughs> villain <laughs> uh, twosome is just gonna kind of change somehow i don't know because you don't get an awful lot of interaction between them in the force awakens it's mostly about finn but yeah wonder how that's going to develop I, I definitely think this book makes it clear that has phasma would not hesitate for a moment in order to betray armitage mm. just like she betrayed his father um which really makes it a very bad call on Armitage's part to trust Phasma in the first place because why would you trust someone who changes their loyalties on a dime like that? Because yes, she worked for you by helping you kill your dad, great, but if she were so disloyal as to turn on Brendel like that, surely she's also going to turn on you at some point as soon as it becomes appropriate? And really, like you say, she already has because destroying Starkiller Base or effectively making the destruction of Starkiller Base possible is really the ultimate betrayal of Hux because that was like his baby. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't really trust her. Maybe they're both looking out against each other like in the same way because they both know what the other one's really like. I think that's the only way to do it without making at least one of them look really stupid. (laughs) So (laughs) I like to think that's what will happen. Um, I did find the depiction of Armitage himself quite interesting in the book because, yeah, he's cold and super, super cold. Obviously, we knew he was very cold from TFA because, yeah, he's a very like hard military man in that film. But the fact that he was involved with his father's death, especially in the manner that he was, is quite chilling, really, when you stop to think about it. Mm. Didn't you write a meta about this, like in speculation terms, obviously, because we didn't know this book was coming out. But quite a while ago, after The Force Awakens, you're like, clearly Hux and Kylo are kind of designed to be foils for each other. So maybe he killed his father, but feels no remorse about it. Yes, I did. I did do that post. Let me find it. <laughs> um I hate to brag. But <laughs> and, and Phasma's obviously the same way as well, right? So it's interesting that we have these three young villains and they've all killed their parents in, like, indirectly or directly um, mm. but Kylo's the one who feels really torn apart by it yeah exactly um, right so like my two major predictions in relation to this and this was posted in July 2016 in an article titled Hux and Kylo Daddy Issues and the Snoke Master Plan <laughs> and my main predictions at that time were Hux and Kylo were both integral to Snoke's assumption of control of the First Order. As part of this, Hux murdered his father as Kylo went on to murder his. Uh, so yeah, I basically predicted that Hux would kill his dad, like Kylo did in TFA. And he basically did. He didn't do it himself. He was more underhand than that. But he still had a key part in it and he was responsible for making it happen because I don't think that Brendel would have died if Hux hadn't willed it essentially Phasma needed to have Hux's go ahead for that to work because yeah otherwise there wasn't much for her to gain from that because 
who was going to assume power. And they've like Armitage and Daddy Hux had had a great relationship and had gone on father and son outings every weekend. Then he certainly would not have been happy. But the whole thing worked because the two Huxes were always like at odds, it seems. So like Hux was really happy to have his dad gone basically so I guess really confusing to just say Hux I need to <laughs> by their first names <laughs> yeah well the aftermath books kind of set up that relationship from the get-go really don't they because Brendel describes his son in such horrible terms um it makes sense that Hux would grow up just hating his father yeah so yeah Brendel seems like he'd win some kind of world's worst dad <laughs> like award you know he just seems like an awful parent <laughs> Yeah, but then, like, Cardinal really does look up to Brendel as, like, this guy who was, like, a father figure to him. Mm. Um, you know, he never met his own father. And then, yeah, like, he idolizes Brendel, thinks that he gave him all of these opportunities in life because he has been brainwashed about what the First Order does and doesn't really know any better. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just think, like, obviously the Cardinal name is very on the nose in terms of his red armor, but also that it's kind of about watching this guy who is arguably entrusted to instill faith in others, like these children troopers, he's losing his faith over the course of the book. And it's so interesting. Like, I really feel like, I don't know, to me, it's kind of like a precursor to what we can expect with Kylo Ren. Um, yeah. Because th I think there are parallels between the characters. Oh, I certainly think there are. There were certain passages I was reading and I was thinking, wow, this could literally be about Kylo. Because you really get the sense of Cardinal as this like devout, almost like religious believer in the First Order as a movement and in the nobility of its purpose and its goals. And you definitely get that like zealotry from Kylo himself, especially when he's saying bullshit like the Supreme Leader is wise. <laughs> like, he really does sound like he's been to some kind of like religious brainwashing camp or something. And he's repeated mantras he's heard. Um Although I'd say that Kylo's faith seems a lot less steadfast, which is why there's always this emphasis on him like praying for guidance and like, oh, I feel the pull to the light, it sucks. It's like, I think Cardinal, when he starts off the book, he seems very, very assured in his position and he seems very confident that the First Order is a force for good in the galaxy and that he's doing the right thing by being part of it and contributing to its training program. And then one of the most effective parts of the book is how you see Vi gradually dismantling all that for him mm -hmm. and pulling out these tiny little doubts until they become very big doubts. And then like everything shatters for him by the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was great character work. Yeah, because he's so sure before he goes to Hux that this piece of evidence is going to be it. Like he's, It doesn't seem like it even crosses his mind that Hux would already know and be happy about what Phasma did. So mm. then it's like, well, if he's the general, the entire First Order is rotten. And then yeah. he starts to question, like, is this why Phasma gets ahead? Like, is this what the First Order values? Because he's done everything by the book his whole life. And yet she's got ahead. Um, oh, it's so interesting to see him just start questioning everything. And like, and then he starts drinking and then he's not polishing his armor and yeah. not, not shaving. And like, he starts to disobey all of these rules that would previously have just, he would have been on autopilot. Yeah. So you really start to see his humanity. Yeah, it was really well done. And I really liked seeing what a paternalistic attitude he took towards his responsibility mm. for training the children. Because 
I really bought that yes he did care about these kids and he really wanted to do right by them and he wanted to give them these opportunities and that that for him was one of the great things about the first order that it could give these children who had nothing and no opportunities and no proper home and no prospects he can give them all that and that there's like even really creepy passages like the part about how um they hear like the indoctrination oh god yeah over the speakers at night and how it's like compared to like a soothing sound like in his mother's voice and it's like oh yeah it's horrible yeah um that really struck me as showing how naive he is because it was like oh yes I'm raising my children and then they go off to FASBA and it's like he hadn't even given any thought as to what the end goal was and then as he's learning about FASMA he's like oh wait what what must it be like my children to go out there and work with her in real life battle scenarios well she's turning them into vicious killers it's like yeah of course (laughs) yeah I, I really like the thought that like Finn was probably with Cardinal at some point I sense that Phasma is set very close to The Force Awakens, like within a f- couple of years at most before that film. So, yeah, I think that Finn probably trained under Cardinal for like his whole childhood before going up to Phasma for the next stage of the training program. So, yeah, I'd love to see stories about that, basically. <laughs> yeah, I love that it does kind of give you more insight into what Finn's life would have been. Like, I'm still hoping eventually for a book about his life as a trooper. Um, aside yeah. from before the awakening um but indirectly we do get hints of that here and like he is referencing like their first missions and we know that finn's first mission was when he was on jakku and made that choice so yeah. that's him like just coming under phasma um mm. so yeah at this point he was probably one of cardinal's oldest um yeah. troopers and uh, we we know from before the wake the awakening that he was considered one of the most promising young soldiers so yeah, they probably had a really good relationship, or as good as you can kind of consider it um, in this context. Yeah, um, yeah. It was so. really cool to see them humanized a lot as well, like um, with the free troopers who are prominent in the flashback. So the ones who come down with Brendel, and how you do see them all as like individuals and humans, like even though they've been like indoctrinated in this program, they're clearly still like distinct people and you see that coming through to various degrees and i really like seeing them have to like catch themselves in order to behave in the right way as stormtroopers of the first order mm-hmm. be like, oh gosh yeah no i need to keep up the front and be all official and stuff yeah um, because it does kind of start to break down when they're like in this completely alien environment away from all the structures of power apart from brendel himself yeah definitely i'm also really interested to see because Remember when she takes off the helmet, she's described as looking like Gwendolyn. Yes. I'm wondering if that means we are going to see her face because um, after the Vanity Fair issue came out, people were like, oh, there's Phasma unmasked. And then Pablo Hidalgo was saying on Twitter, well, maybe she won't she won't necessarily look like that in the movie. Mm. Um, and then at first I was wondering if that meant they were going to show her with like the salve on her skin. Yeah. Like to have some marks. But I'm not sure she still wears that because she's no longer part of the Sire. What do you think? Yeah, no, like, I, I did find it really interesting. That was quite a powerful moment when he sees her. Like, I actually have that quote here. Um, there are those pale blue eyes Siv told Vi about, and a crown of soft gold hair haloing pale white skin. A deadly beauty, and he's the only one who knows. Um, so, yeah, that is a very interesting description of her, and that definitely sounds pretty close to Gwendolyn Christie, in my mind. 
Um, so yeah, it may well be preparing us to actually see Phasma in The Last Jedi, and I'd really like that because for me there's limits to how invested or interested in a character I can be without seeing their face. Mm-hmm. Like if a person is just a mask, just a front, then it's difficult for me to really see beyond that unless there are exceptional circumstances and it's a really powerful and important character like Darth Vader. But still, even with Vader, for me, I really, really needed that moment at the end of Return of the Jedi where we see Sebastian Shaw's face mm-hmm. in order to appreciate that character as a complete rounded person. Before that, he was always more of like a mythic archetype. But then when I actually saw his face and how scarred and damaged he was, I really appreciated him as like, wow, that's just a sad, damaged old man under there. And that's really, really poignant and powerful. Yeah, definitely. So. I can see I can see her mask coming off because I feel like it's providing quite stark contrast with the unmaskings that happen in The Force Awakens because obviously you have Rey, Finn and Kylo all unmask at points and mm. that is about uncovering their humanity and who they really are even though they're forced into these different identities. Yeah. Um, but with Phasma, if she unmasks like involuntary maybe like during fighting with Finn, you'll see that she's still just as monstrous underneath yeah um, and then she's you know still going to be this ruthless vicious killer yeah so i feel like that could be quite a powerful contrast yeah no definitely so i hope we see her face basically that would be cool um what did you think about the world of panassus and like the background to that so it's obviously this world where it was used as like this like mining facility apparently but then there was a huge industrial accident and it seems like the company actually tried to cover it up so there's almost like corporate intrigue going yeah. on in Phasma, although it's quite buried in the mythology. But I did actually really like that as a concept, and I loved the idea of how it only took like a handful of generations for like all memory of that to be lost. Mm-hmm. And like the society has just retreated to this really like primitive, like desperate state. Like, and all these like wonders have just been lost to them. I found that idea really fascinating obviously it's been done a lot like in these post-apocalyptic films and books and stuff but yeah i liked seeing it in a star wars context yeah it was obviously a very mad max vibe um Mm. that i could kind of see them doing similar things with jakku at one point except obviously unlike phasma ray has remained hopeful and kind even though her upbringing has been so horrible but yeah and it's just like desolate place you have people who are completely devoid from technology. It's such an interesting contrast from the life that Phasma goes on to live with the First Order. And you can see, like, when Brendel arrives, she's, like, eagerly looking at him, tapping on his data pad and learning how everything works. She's just soaking up all of this information because she knows it's her opportunity to get out and have a better life. Yeah. She's like a sponge, really, isn't she, in terms of her ability to absorb new information. And, like, I... I found it very interesting how she's even shown to like mimic his accent. Yeah, that was really eerie. Like Siv noticing it and being like, "Wait, what?" Because I wonder what I can't can't remember if there was a description of their speech patterns before that. Because um, it's obviously just presented in their dialogue as like normal English speaking. But yeah, is it an accent or is it just like the dialect was changing? Like, I don't know if they speak basic to begin with. Um, yeah. I kind of wish there had been a bit more clarity on that, to be honest, because yeah. it's an interesting concept, but I didn't, I'm not sure how much I bought it or could really like, hear it playing out in my mind, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, like at first, I was confused by the descriptions of the other Sire characters because 
they were all sounding like people of color. And then obviously you have Gwendolyn Christie. And then I saw that um, Delilah Dawson had fan cast um, Keldo as Alexander Skarsgård. <laughs> so I was like, wait, so how are they part of this like clan of people? Like I didn't realize until the end that they weren't um, initially from that that community. Right, so I was like, yeah. oh, okay. So yeah, they come in and like become the leaders themselves eventually. Yeah. I was like, wait, so that's what I thought when Pablo was saying, oh, she might not look like that. I was like, wait, so are they actually going to show Gwendolyn Christie? Is it going to be someone else entirely? Yeah. That would be really jarring. So I guess the idea is that they're all just descendants of the workers who used to be on the facility. Yeah. And they could be of any race. So. Yeah. What did you think about Brendel giving Anakin's line about the sand? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that coming from Brendel made it no better. <laughs> it really took me out of the book. Like I get it's just a yeah. joke, I know. Like I'm not gonna get like weird about it, but I was just like, why is that in there? <laughs> I'll tell you what the most cringe part in Phasma was for me. It's when um like Phasma and Brendel are like conspiring about something away from the rest of the group and Siv is watching them and she's wondering if they're about to mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's like no. Yeah. I think it's interesting as well that she was like talking about her own relationships and obviously she's not monogamous because she's not quite sure who the father of her baby is. Yes. Um but then she's like, "Oh, I've noticed that Phasma has never mated with anyone." I did that kind of stuff is interesting because I I get that it's kind of building up Phasma as this like almost sociopath that she doesn't she doesn't have any interest in gaining close relationships with people or connecting with them. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure how I feel about that being kind of um, associated with, like, asexuality or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? I know what you like mean. A... It, it does make it seem like a kind of villainous trait. <laughs> right. It was like, what's wrong with you? You don't have any emotion. But obviously that's not how, like, the real world sees asexuality, or it shouldn't anyway. Yeah. Uh, I think it was just like more of a character detail that was... I suppose well intentioned, um, yeah. but yeah, like it's clear that Phasma never really unmasks figuratively in front of other people. Like even her brother, like how much does he really know her? Because it's like yeah. he do- he doesn't really see her until she betrays him in that horrible way. Mm. And then when you flash back to like just ten years before, when all this stuff goes down, there's not really any hint of it. It's that the two of them are kind of leaders, but he's carrying the secret that he knows she lied to him that she did Mm. this to him and then just pretended that she hadn't. Yeah. It's chilling. Yeah. It's very weird. It shows like the brutal necessities, I guess, of life in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. Oh, the other thing I thought was funny that Vi was calling the Huxes greasy ginger weasels. (laughs) Yes. Is that a Weasley reference? (laughs) (laughs) That didn't cross my mind. It could be though. That's amazing. I thought it had to be. <laughs> I was like, that's what they're called in Harry Potter, right? Like, by the Malfoys and that. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, I do think of, um, like, I do think that's a good description, though, any Harry Potter illusions aside, because, yeah, they are very, like, slimy and wriggly characters who can get out of awkward situations. <laughs> yeah, because we've had Hux described by a few different perspectives now, right? Because in, like, the Force Awakens novelization. Kylo thinks of him as the slimy sycophant. Yeah. And obviously, to an extent, he and Cardinal are kind of unreliable narrators in that they obviously have their own personal vendettas against him. Mm-hmm. But it's obviously how we're encouraged as the audience to see him too. 
Yeah. Um. So yeah, like Cardinal says that he's known him since he was a child, and that he's like sullen and spoiled, and it's just yeah, it doesn't paint a pretty picture. Yeah. One thing I really liked about the book is I really liked it and an insight into like the whole concept of there being like a specific officer's deck where like mm. all the higher ups have their accommodation. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, right? Uh, it does. And then it totally. speaks to Cardinal's character as someone who refuses that luxury, that he's happy to stay down in his dark chambers and kind of connect with the children more that way. He yeah. has this real modesty about him. So yeah, yeah that was a really cool detail. It's really character building. Although I did um, find it curious because um, it kind of implies that Hux has this like quite ostentatious like room, like with like nice sofas and like tasteful furniture and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then there's that comment, the bizarre comment about um, Hux and Kylo having similar tastes in interior design. <laughs> yeah, then... that kind of surprised me because yeah. I haven't descriptions of Kylo's quarters in the Force Awakens novelization. It was like the opposite, right? Yeah, and you literally see it, and it's really like stark and minimal. There's nothing in it. <laughs> it's like just a chair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that was strange to me. Unless it, I'm guessing it might mean he has like proper rooms somewhere else, but oh, who knows? I shouldn't be thinking in so much depth about where Kylo Ren lives. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right that it is depicted in the Force of when he's talking to Vader's helmet. That's on the finalizer, right? That's his. Yeah, yeah that those are his private rooms. And it's just a chair, and then the thing with Vader's helmet on it. Like it's not—it's not ornate or anything. It's definitely not what they describe as Brendel's taste, with like the rugs and the art and everything. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine Kylo in that kind of environment. It feels so wrong. Yeah. So yeah, I know it connects his and maybe she means like in terms of lack of color with him yeah. and Huck similar tastes. But yeah, Kylo seems deliberately stark, whereas Hux's is more just like modernist or something. <laughs> Yeah, Hux is like tastefully minimal. With his ice blue couch. <laughs> Which he drapes himself over because of course he does. Yeah. I did find it was funny that his dressing gown or robe or whatever was described as a uniform. So like even when he's not in his uniform, he's still in one. Oh my god. Not able to relax. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read the Phasma comics yet, but mm. I'll, I'll move on to them next. Yeah. Uh, I think it's done what it needs to do in terms of her character, like build her up as this terrifying opponent for Finn. Yeah, sure. Um, and it, they really needed that after The Force Awakens because no one was taking her seriously. So I think it's been a success. And it is a great read in and of itself. But like we said, it's it's more about those other characters that are introduced. And I would love to see more of them now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really want to know what happens to the Cardinal. Yeah. Exactly. They're really intriguing. And I think that's a great compliment to the book, that it makes us care so much about those new characters. Because mm -hmm. it's relatively easy to take a character that we already love and tell an interesting story about them because we're already invested. I think it's much harder to create completely new characters and get us to buy into them and follow their stories. And yeah, I think Phasma exceeds really well on that front. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Oh yeah, there's one more thing I'd like to say, and that is that I find it very interesting that Phasma again returns to this point where children are like treated like commodities. So Frey, like she is treated as something really precious, and in the book there's shown to be these like raids where like rival clans will come in and they'll literally try and steal Frey. So that's their only goal, steal the child. 
And I just found that interesting because I kind of feel like it feeds into this wider picture we're getting of stuff like the Empire needs children and children being like used as like labor and commodities on Jakku and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's really interesting to me because in the original trilogy, it was almost like a child-free world, if that makes sense. Like you hardly ever see children on screen at all. So you don't really think about them. You don't think about what place they have in the galaxy. In the sequel trilogy, that's a really, really integral aspect of it. And it's very important, apparently, to understand that children were constantly being hounded and hunted and picked up as these things to be used and moulded according to other people's purposes. And yeah, I I really find that idea fascinating. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that speaks to where the First Order is at, like in relation to the Empire being destroyed, that they do have to start things over and that they need this young blood. Like, what is it that Rax says? The Empire needs children. Mm. It's just so sinister. And it really does feed into all of the, you know, the arcs of Rey, Finn and Kylo in the sequel trilogy as well. Um, Yeah, super interesting. It is. Lots of great world building. Wow, that was a long conversation about Phasma. (laughs) But it is actually a really interesting book. And yeah, like like we both said before, I think we'd definitely both recommend it. There's a lot to get your teeth into with it. Yeah, it's one of my new favourites in the new canon. And it wasn't... I wasn't expecting that because Phasma isn't that compelling to me, but the other characters stood up so well on their own that I would recommend it for them. So Yeah, totally. It was a really pleasant surprise. Um, right, and then we are going to move into Leia, Princess of Alderaan, which I literally finished a matter of hours ago, and I loved it so, so much. It was brilliant. And Same. <laughs> Claudia Gray just continues to prove herself as one of the greatest writers in the new EU. And yeah, she's so impressive. Yeah, I was expecting to love it, and I'm really glad that I did. And I just keep wanted her to keep writing Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, same. And I've heard that her short story um, in the new short story collection, from a certain point of view, is great as well. So I can't wait to read that. Oh, amazing. Like, wh- which character is her story about in that? I think it's about Qui-Gon. Oh, wow. Interesting. So. That is. That isn't what I would have expected, but that's a really interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah, where to begin with this? I know, it's like, hard. Because, like, well, I guess we could just talk about how it fits in to our perception of Leia in the new canon in general, because I I love that we now have this and bloodline um, for Leia, because obviously with what's happened with Carrie, I think people were worried that she would just kind of be minimized now as an important character. Um, And obviously the rest of the sequel trilogy remains to be seen what's going to happen with her ultimately. But it's so cool to have this now as a glimpse into her childhood because that was lacking and as it was even clearer in contrast to like what we knew about Luke's upbringing and everything. Um, so I think it's really special that we now have this and Bloodline to kind of show how Leia evolves as a character in such different parts of her life. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. And I love how seamless it felt. Every aspect of Leia felt true to the character that we meet in A New Hope. And it actually enriched my understanding of the character. Like I was reading it and I was thinking like, wow, this makes so much sense. Like the stuff about her being familiar with Captain Captain Antilles when she's like introduced to him on the Tante Four, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and like meeting Free PO and R2D2 for the first time and 
all these wonderful little details and just beyond like the little nostalgic nods like that that tie in directly to a new hope i really thought the character stuff was great like how we see leia go from this naive child to like an accomplished and wise like political presence who actually understands the dangers of her life and the perils of being involved in the rebellion and yeah i I found that all really really fascinating and i felt it made the stakes in a new hope feel even richer oh definitely because this has always been one of my problems with a new hope like it's a great movie obviously but it was still very much luke's story um Mm. and i know after we had lost stars like the real tragedy of older and was like you could start to appreciate it more because it seems so arbitrary in A New Hope, even though you know Leia's from there and is obviously devastated. It just happens so quickly. Yeah. And then you move back to old Ben and how she has to comfort uh, Luke there. Um, but this, obviously, even it happens before Alderaan's destroyed, but because you get to know its culture and its people so much more, it just really brings gravitas to that tragedy. Yeah. And everything that happens with her and Tarkin as well. Like I didn't really expect him to be in this book, but it's so cool that he was because it enriches their interactions there as well. Yeah. Um, that he knew from the start that Leia and her parents were involved, but didn't quite have the evidence yet. And there's that really tense moment where he comes and kind of just descends on their dinner party. Mm. And it's so awkward how he knows, but doesn't quite know enough. And then they have to stage that big argument to get rid of him. Yeah, And then how he uses that as a way to kind of get closer to Leia and have her accidentally slip up and implicate her parents. Like It's so crafty and it just feels yeah. very Tarkin as well. Yeah, and I love how we see Tarkin gradually come to realise that Leia is in on the rebellion, mm-hmm. but he still isn't able to prove it and there are still two substantial risks for him to say anything about it. So then when you get to a new hope and you see him ordering the destruction of Alderaan in front of her, that makes it clear what like a sick triumph that is for him in that moment, because he's clearly known for years that Leia's been involved, but he finally has the proof he needs in order to like assign blame to her definitively mm-hmm. and say, no, 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 you are definitely in the rebellion. You can't escape from this anymore. And then that becomes the excuse to destroy Alderaan. And then that's a terrible, terrible tragedy because that is obviously the ultimate thing that Leia always wanted to avoid. Mm -hmm. She always wanted to avoid endangering her own people and her own planet. Especially that last line in the book, man. Oh my god. Such a gut punch. (laughs) It's like, oh no, they do take all of that from you. It sucks. Yeah. I just like Leia has suffered so much. Like, because you already think that before this book even happens, right? And then you read this, and it's like everything with Kia and her parents, and just older on in general, it's like, wow, she has known so much loss. And then we have the sequel trilogy as well, like everything that happens with Han and how she's lost her son. It's like, can we please have some happiness, Valeria? Yeah. Please. <laughs> I, I really, really need that at this point. I just need to have catharsis. Yeah. Because. Yeah, just everything the character has been through is like, Leia deserves better. Like, that phrase has never been truer than with Leia. It's just unbelievable what she's gone through, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so there's so many great moments in this book where they tie things together in a way that doesn't feel like they're making the galaxy too small. It's more like just giving you these 
links between the characters who previously like you know again with the original trilogy even though leia talks about her mother and supposedly remembers her even though we know that that's impossible um you have these direct links here with her and padme that moff panaka like he he sees her and immediately like spilt like drops his tea because she looks exactly like Padme and then he starts questioning her really awkwardly even though obviously Leia doesn't know anything about her parents and is very adamant that her adoptive parents are her family but he just is onto her immediately like he knows he starts putting things together and he's like well Padme died around that time and we know that you were adopted and you look an awful lot like her and yeah. start saying that he's going to let the emperor know about her. <laughs> it's horrible because you know exactly what he's talking about as the audience, but she doesn't. And then yeah. clearly he's not able to do that. He dies, but... Yeah. It really like makes me think of this whole parallel universe where what if he survived that? What if he did tell the emperor? Would the emperor have like, scooped Leia up and taken her off to train her in the force? Yeah. Like, it, it's always like, been a headcanon of mine that if Vader had tried to turn Leia, it would have been <laughs> much easier because I always feel like Leia is more like Anakin than Luke was. Yeah. Luke's I definitely think Anakin. Leia has much more anger. Yeah. I know. I don't want to like say that and hurt people. Like, if they're like, oh, no, Leia's good because I know she is. But Anakin was good until he wasn't. You know, if you. Star Wars shows you that anyone could probably turn with the right amount of anger and just yeah it's i feel like the parallels between leia and anakin are always so strong um and that's what makes their dynamic ultimately so interesting because i do feel like the way that she she's talking to him on naboo like no i know who my family are like that's my family and she doesn't have any burning curiosity about who her biological parents were but then you skip forward to bloodline and that family history and tragedy has shaped now her her career when it comes out that Vader's her father, but ultimately it goes on to shape the relationship she has with her adult son. Like once he mm-hmm. finds out, everything changes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just like this dirty secret that's festering there for decades. Yeah. That's so, so fascinating. Um, and, Oh god, the thought of like Leia dressing in those like Nabooian fashions and like talking to the new queen of Naboo and like <laughs> Yeah. I would have loved to see this as a movie. <laughs> yeah, same. Like there's so much like stuff where teen girls get together and like kick ass and like work together to accomplish goals and that's amazing. Yeah, I really we never get films like that. <laughs> Definitely. Like Obviously, now we know that one of the main links with this book from its journey to The Last Jedi is that she's going to have that relationship with Amalyn. And previously, fans have been kind of speculating, well, maybe Amalyn's going to be a secret villain. But now I'm like, please, no, that can't yeah. be right, because she seems to be one of the enduring female friends that Leia's had. Um, mm. And that at first, she kind of thinks she's a bit weird and oddball. And doesn't think that it would be a great idea for her to join the rebellion. But when everything goes down with Kia, like she's there for her, and yeah. they they have a lasting friendship now. So I'm I can't wait to see them together. Yeah, no, like having read Leia, I'm flummoxed, but in a good way, as to how Holdo is going to fit into the Last Jedi, because she is just such a fun, silly, vibrant character, you know, and how she's like off on her own plane of reality, mm-hmm. and I'm like. I really, really need to see what Ryan does with this character in this film. <laughs> because I can't visualise it, but 
I'm really looking forward to how he visualizes it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I feel like she's going to turn out to be someone who is making decisions that like Poe, he's like almost the polar opposite, right? He's very yeah. level headed and straightforward. And she's going to be making decisions that he thinks are terrible ones. So they're going to yeah. butt heads, but she's just going to kind of have this, I don't know, very, because she's very like friendly and open and honest, but also like, yeah, I, you know, everything's going to work out. And it's just, I think it's going to be kind of funny in a way. Yeah. I wonder if um, Poe is almost going to be in a similar situation to Leia in this book, where at first, like, he looks at Holdo and he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> because that's a natural response to Holdo, given her behavior. But then, like, as it goes on, he actually starts to see that there's some wisdom in the decision she's making and that oh, okay, while she is a bit weird and eccentric, there is actually method to the madness and there are results and the things she wants to do, they're paying off. So then eventually that conflict between them can give way to like a more positive relationship mm. where they can actually achieve things together. I'd like to see that kind of story because I think the whole idea of like this bossy bitch comes in and ruins everything for our heroes that's been overplayed Mm -hmm. and I think there's way more interesting ways to do it than that yeah like aside from just Amelin by herself and in general it's really cool to see Leia interacting with other teenagers because towards the beginning you kind of emphasize it they're they're driving the point home that she's kind of isolated that um even though she has these great relationships with her parents although at that moment she's feeling like they're neglecting her a little bit because she doesn't understand what's going on with the rebellion, but that she doesn't have these peer relationships. And then through these challenges that she's going through, she makes these connections with people and is, you know, initially quite prejudiced about them. Um, but then comes to understand them as human beings. And like with Kia too, you know, that she often misinterprets what he's saying and like feels that he's being quite rude, but then he says, no, that's not what I mean. I'm trying to be nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that their relationship is so cute. Yeah. No, I really, really liked it. And I found all the um, depictions of the teen characters very natural and honest, which I really appreciated. And I liked how at the end it feels like your initial expectations of many of the characters, they've kind of been upended. Mm-hmm. Because like with Keir... Like, at first, you think he's just this cute guy who Leia falls in love with, and they have this really sweet and tender relationship. But then at the end, it becomes unbelievably more complex than that, which we'll go into in more depth in a minute. Um, But then, even with less important characters, like, I think it was Chasselon, like, another one of the young men. At first, he seems like this complete dick, like, who's into, like, restoring vintage speeders or something. And he seems quite selfish and arrogant. And he is, and he does do asshole things. But then at the end, he actually promises to keep a secret for Leia. And he actually seems like a good ally and someone who respects her. And so it shows that there's all these complexities to these people. And that they might come across in one way and behave badly but that doesn't necessarily mean they're like rotten to the core there's these other aspects to them so yeah I liked that complexity yeah and I do think that kind of pays the way to Leia's relationship with Han because obviously they don't get off to the best start mm. um but yeah there's this thing in Star Wars isn't it that someone's not always how they first appear to be um and I guess how, the way everything happens with Kia I know we'll talk about it more in a second but it really made me understand more of why 
Leia is at first, how she is with Han in like the beginning of Empire Strikes Back when she's mm. so unwilling to let her guard down. Like this is why, right? Or at least it's a big part yeah. of it that she doesn't just feel like Han is unsuitable for her. It's that she's been heartbroken in the past and she she says in the book like she doesn't feel like she'll ever be able to love someone again or deserve that kind of connection because yeah. of how things have gone down with Kier and oh it's just heartbreaking yeah oh do you want to talk about Kier <laughs> sure <laughs> oh god that ending like I don't know if I was just being unobservant but I really did not see that coming oh really he turns up at the end no like I should have because I realised that Leia mentioned the name of her destination to him when she was talking and asking him to cover for her but that and the way that he was prepared to turn in the rebellion to save Alderaan Mm. that really got to me and I was like oh my god but of course he does it's one of those things where I wasn't expecting it but it made a lot of sense as soon as like it happened yeah oh of course I know what you mean in hindsight because the way he talks about the empire and Alderaan and her parents and the misgivings he has with the rebellion before it all kind of comes together that he's wrestling with this decision because it's not just as simple as him betraying her and acting like the empire's great you know it's this reality that not everyone is going to feel the same way about the rebellion because yeah. it does put people in danger and look what happens to Alderaan um mm. I'm not going to say that's Leia's fault obviously but as the leader it's it's like this thing where they inevitably put their people at risk um, and Brea and Bale are talking about that from early on like they know the risks that they're so frightened for Leia and they're frightened for their people as well yeah. they're trying to be so careful and then when Leia kind of uncovers things at first Bale's terrified because if, if she finds it that means that the Imperials can too mm. oh god <laughs> <laughs> sorry like it's still very raw for me <laughs> yeah I'm interested to see how the general fandom reaction is to Leia having a love interest be- beforehand because we didn't really get any hints of it, obviously, before. Like, this is something new, but it, it fits quite well into it. And yeah, I, definitely. I love the little nods to Han um, in the book. Like, she, that she's when she's trying to get Chip, she sees the Millennium Falcon fly away before she can speak to anyone on board. Um, yeah. And then there's that other part where Bray is like, oh, he seems so suitable. Like, maybe you should have had a first romantic alliance with a scoundrel or something like that. <laughs> And then there's that yes. movement that's pretty relatable that Leia's like realizing that her mother might have had love interests before Bale. And it's <laughs> of growing up, right, where you realize that your parents have lives before you and they have secrets of their own. Yeah, totally. Like, it was all really well done. And like, like I thought it might be a bit cheesy, given like Leia of love interest who we had no idea of before this book. But yeah, like you say, it really felt so natural. And I was like, yeah, they're really cute together. I really like this. I I do wonder if it's going to upset some of the people, though, who, like you say, only really concentrate on that Han and Leia romance. Mm. Because it's like, oh, Han wasn't Leia's first love and stuff. But yeah, it's just a reality that people have more than one relationship. So (laughs) I do wonder if it's going to be part of them kind of trying to prepare people for him maybe having a love interest in the movie yeah i mean people have speculated from the beginning of the casting decisions that maybe a nearly class character was going to be some kind of romantic interest Uh, we we obviously don't know but 
don't know, it'd just be interesting to see how that's received as well. Because I know films obviously have a much broader reach. Um, but if they're releasing this book about Leia beforehand and then she has a love interest, it probably gets people more used to the idea. Because if, you, if you've shipped a couple for decades, which obviously people in Star Wars fandom have with Han and Leia, it might mm. be kind of hard to get used to that idea, right? Because... Again, we've talked before about these fairy tale elements. It positions it as if it's like, yes, they're made for each other, even though they come from these crazy, crazily different backgrounds and circumstances. But there's this connection and they argue like crazy, but they love each other very much. Um, mm. And then this kind of the side material presents this as, yeah, they've had different relationships. It's, I don't know, it seems a bit more realistic, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Never would have really felt right for me if, Han and Leia had only ever been involved with each other, especially Han. I know, right? Like, because he's so much older. Yeah. And it, it, you could kind of get this vibe before that because he doesn't profess to care about anything except himself, it's like, yeah, why not? I mean, he's kind of presented as this rogue character, so. Yeah, exactly. This is not like Kylo because Kylo's comes across as like this like weirdo monk. <laughs> Like that is like the inverse of Han Solo. Yeah. So, yeah, that is interesting. Um, how about Brea and Bale? What did we think about those characters? Oh, I really loved them. I'm glad mm. that we have this deeper look into them now because they have been kind of side characters before. I know they were, you know, obviously fleshed out more in the EU, but we're talking new canon. Bale, obviously, a bit more since he had a cameo in Rogue One. Um, but I really appreciated it for Brea especially and that dynamic yeah. between her and Leia. Yeah, it was so lovely. Like the fact that it's mother and daughter climbing that mountain at the end of the book. Yeah. And how Brea's like in her like normal like exercise overalls or whatever it is. And it's like, oh my God, this is so <laughs> nice. Like everything seemed like so perfectly tall to intensify the pain by making you care so much. Mm hmm. Like so, I think one of the stories, and from a certain point of view, is from Brea's perspective as Alderaan is destroyed. Oh god! And I think that is going to utterly devastate me now. <laughs> it's going to be like, oh no! Oh man! Yeah, yeah. that's going to be rough. Yeah, it's like, how do we possibly deal with that, man? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to need counselling. <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but yeah, like I really liked it because there was so much dimension to those characters because we see them as like a couple so we see the friction in their relationship often over their differences in opinion over like how much Leia should be told and how much Leia should be brought into the conversation about the rebellion we see them like as parents so how they're defined in relation to Leia herself like how they interact with her what they choose to tell her and so on and so forth I sense that Breya is more open with her than Bale because I guess the idea is that Breya really understands Leia because she was once a young girl herself mm -hmm. so she can really relate to her and identify with her on that level and talk to her in those terms which Bale can't Bale seems more like the overprotective dad kind of and he's like oh no please don't get involved oh god why are you here again go away <laughs> yeah like, which you totally understand but then that makes it really lovely and really powerful when by the end of the book he really shows enough respect and care for her to think yeah you've saved my ass <laughs> you can be trusted yeah i loved the callback from rogue one where he's like yeah i trust you with my life and then you obviously hear him say that again to mon mothma yeah <laughs> yeah it's that connection that like yeah he's 
obviously he loves Leia very much, but until she grows up and shows him that she can be trusted with this kind of terrifying responsibility. And at the beginning of the book, obviously she is making these mistakes because even though she's desperate to help, she's naive and doesn't always have the information that she needs. And you really see that evolution and you see that kind of passing the torch with her coming in and saying, you know, going through these formalities of the, the old Iranian like royal culture, but it's mm. symbolic, you know, it is this coming of age for her that I'm so glad we have now because that was missing. Yeah. There's a really, really powerful coming of age story in my opinion, and it makes so much sense of why Leia is already such a like finished person when we meet her in A New Hope. Because she's not in a, she's not on a coming of age journey in that film. She's already like a complete finished person in in like many respects, you know. Um, like she feels so much more mature and accomplished than Luke does in yeah. particular. And the book really makes you appreciate why that is, because I think this is her coming of age story. Yeah, A New Hope really was very by the numbers. Joseph Campbell with him, like, oh yeah, women don't need to go on hero journeys of their own they're already right where they need to be that she's there to help out luke on his journey right and yeah. that's kind of what lucas was doing with her because i obviously we know that he was never intending for her to be his sister at the time and it wasn't like oh yeah she's going to be with han and go off and have her own thing um but i don't know it speaks to the power of storytelling right that you can weave out this incredible character and narrative from something that was never in- initially intended to be that way um, and Carrie just did such an incredible job that she's defined this character for decades and has come mm. to mean so much for so many people. So it's wonderful. Yeah. Like, I really loved the tie back to Bloodline with the keepsake box. Yes. I thought that was amazing. Can you remember if in Bloodline the lock of hair in that box is mentioned? Because uh-huh. if it is, that crushes me. I have a feeling it is. And that alone like, is like, says so much to me about the forward planning of this mm. and how well it's designed. Like to be fair, it may well have been that they mentioned that lock of hair, like maybe originally envis- envisaging it to be from like Brea or someone because Brea has black hair. But yeah, the fact that it's Kier and is like a piece of him in her keepsake box and she's looking at it all those years later when she's married another man and had a child with him and yeah, I'm going to have to go back and read it again now, I think. Yeah. Like, I love that about the new canon, how things are woven together so well. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I did like that a lot about Phasma, like when we were talking about that, how it fleshes out a lot of the things from The Force Awakens and makes you think, oh, I see. So this is like how the young stormtroopers are actually raised in that program. Like there's like different instructors at different stages in their lives and that kind of thing like it just enriches it a lot for me so yeah really appreciate that mm-hmm. yeah definitely and I, I just love how these like little character details and little snippets of the the culture there on her planet are kind of woven in so seamlessly mm-hmm. um like a character detail I loved that really endeared to Amelyn was like when she arrives at that party and then she, she's just not interested in small talk. She just heads straight to the, the snacks and champagne. I was like, wow, that's me. <laughs> yeah, same. Totally me. Like when I go to parties, that is what matters to me. Like <laughs> screw the awkward conversation that you don't actually want to have. Get straight to that table. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm excited to see this character and like 
how this is going to fit because presumably I don't know if we've had confirmation of it this time around but I'm guessing still that because she was introducing these new characters Claudia talked to Ryan a little bit about how Amalyn would be yeah um, and obviously we have Crate as well so that's not quite the same but there's still this description there that's going to weave in somehow yeah and I really liked how um, with Amalyn you almost see her go on this arc as well because there's this whole idea that she comes from the planet where everyone is very like staid and they all dress in the same style and it's very somber and boring. But then in Amelyn's case, she feels like she wants to be defiantly unique. So she wears these like patently ridiculous, outrageous clothes in order to define herself by the fact that she's so very different from her home world and the other people on her home world mm-hmm. and then Leia actually says to her Amalyn you don't need to define yourself in that way just be who you are and stop defining yourself in terms of what you're not and then she does and you see her start to tone it down a little bit so she's still very unique and still very much herself but she's not like as aggressive with it because she's no longer trying to like make a point about how different she is from everyone else on her planet and I really, really liked that. And that really touched me on quite a personal level because I think that when I was a teenager, I often was guilty of that kind of behavior because I was kind of like, oh, I'm so unique. I'm so different from everyone else. I, I need to be like super, super different. And, like <laughs> if something's popular, I can't possibly like it or be into it. Like, but then when you get older and more mature, you mellow a bit and you realize actually that really doesn't matter. And I need to stop being so concerned about what everyone else does and thinks and, just like what I like and think what I think you know and yeah I thought that was really nice yeah that's a very relatable teenage girl thing isn't it yeah and I yeah I like that obviously we've seen these glimpses of what Amalyn's going to look like um and she still has that individuality about her and this confidence to dress and do her hair how she likes but yeah like you say that she's probably not letting it define herself now in terms of a contrast that she's more about you know being defined by her character and her actions because that's what ultimately matters. I would just say another detail that I really loved was when Kia was taking down her braids. Oh, God. That yes. is fanfic heaven. <laughs> Thank you, Claudia, for this little peek into old Iranian relationship culture. <laughs> yeah. When will that first come up in a Raylo fanfiction? I oh, I've, I've already seen it. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. People were quick oh my off God. the mark. Yeah. You need to link me to that. Okay, it was just a drabble on Tumblr, but yeah, it's like... You still need to link me to that. That's yeah, amazing. That's the kind of thing this stuff's perfect for, right? That yeah. people take these things from canon and weave it in. Like, we saw it with Phasma and the Kylux fandom. Um, yeah, I mean, you can... It makes it more fun. Yeah, and it's something that you could possibly weave into Leia and Ben's dynamic as well, right? That he maybe saw her doing her hair when he was younger and that she let him help out help out and like help her with her braids like yeah a fan in heaven exactly thank you claudia (laughs) you're my hero (laughs) um right is there anything else you want to say about leia oh i don't know i'm sure we'll keep talking about it because it's it's weaves in so well with how you understand leia in general now um yeah yeah, and we'll obviously be able to talk more about how it fits in with The Last Jedi once we've seen that. So I, Yeah, totally. I wonder if when they get to Kray and she meets... Um, well, I don't know when we'll meet Amalyn, like whether it's before they get to Kray or whether they're on their way there when they meet or something, but presumably it's going to have this extra emotional weight if you've read this book and know that they were there as teenagers together. Yeah. 
Definitely. Like, I think of that shot from the behind the scenes where you see Carrie and Laura Dern, like, smiling at each other and holding hands. Yeah. And just that shot alone, that means so much more now. I've read this book, mm-hmm. and that's lovely. And I can't wait for the film, e- even more so than before. You know, it just made me more excited, which is exactly what I should do. Yeah. So it's great stuff. I'm so excited. We're getting, like, into peak Star Wars now, and it's, yeah, just great. Like, I love all this new content, and. I continue to be really impressed by what they're putting out. I think it's of a really high standard. Yeah, same. I, and, like, you know, I always thought that I would read Phasma, but I didn't know how much I was going to enjoy it. Um, yeah, Because Leia, I figured, you know, it, it was kind of a known quantity to me in that I already loved Claudia's writing and I loved how she'd written Leia in the past. So that one just always seemed like it was going to be a hit with me. And I'm pleased it yeah. was, obviously, but Phasma was a really nice surprise. Yeah, no, that's great. So I remember you at one point, like you weren't even sure if you were going to buy it because you just could not care less about Phasma, which is perfectly understandable <laughs> based on The Force Awakens. But yeah, like you say, it really was like a worthy book. And the author, Delilah S. Dawson, isn't it? Mm-hmm. She did a great job of like making a case for why this book should exist and why it deserves to be read. So yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. Um. I think that's the end of like the show proper. But would you like to have like a brief conversation about Darren Aronofsky's mother? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I've seen Mother three times now, and the last time I saw it, I, was... I hope no one heard me because I was probably a bit creepy. But I came out of the cinema and I just burst out laughing as I was like walking up the stairs. I was laughing during the movie. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no. I was laughing during the movie too, but at the end of the film, I was laughing because of people's responses oh, right. to the film. Yeah, I... because <laughs> at the very end of the film, the person in front of me said, literally, I'm quoting them word for word. They said, "That is the most terrible film I have ever seen in my life." Yeah, and they said it really loudly because they really needed people to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I came out of it and I was I I was laughing during the movie because it, everything was just turning so ridiculous towards the end it really starts to escalate obviously um mm. oh yeah we should probably have told people not to listen to this if they were going to watch the movie um oh yeah um actually let me just do that quickly now this is a spoiler discussion of mother <laughs> because you cannot talk about mother properly without spoilers if you have any interest in watching mother do not listen to this thank you and goodbye although actually you know what i would say that it's probably good to have some kind of preparation um in terms of like understanding what the allegory is because so i came out of it and i was like wow that's the most interesting ambitious film i've seen in a long time um and i loved the experience of watching it even though i'm not going to say like i love it as a film in its own right like i just feel it was super interesting but i I don't know if i'll watch it again um but i came out and i was just looking at my phone and my friend who lives in Ireland had sent me a message and was like, Oh, I just got back from seeing mother. It's the worst film I've ever seen. If you're going to go, don't. And I was just like, <laughs> this experience pretty much sums it up how divisive yeah. the film is. And I was watching totally. it and I was like, Oh my God, this is incredible. But I also completely understand why people would hate this. Yeah. So I think it's a film that's very deliberately tall to be offensive and in your face. Um, and I do think things in it are designed to maximise the shock value. So like everything that happens with the baby 
in the final act of the film like all of that build up so when you see the mother character caressing her pregnant belly when you see her like cradling that baby in her arms and it's the cutest newborn baby you've ever seen in your life and it's making these adorable scrunchy faces and then there's a really sweet shot of her breastfeeding the baby and so on and so forth all of that stuff is there so that when the baby is literally torn to pieces, it is harrowing as hell. It is, and but at the same Darren time... Darren Aronofsky knows what he's doing. Um, But yeah, like, are you going to say that it's also so unreal that it doesn't really register? Well, also at that point, you can see it coming, right? Because like you say, oh, yeah. it's built up. Um, And at that point, it's clear that it's like, yes, they're working through these biblical stories. So the baby will be like an avatar for Jesus. And then his body is eaten by the people. And then they are supposed to be forgiven, even though they're not sorry. Um, So, yeah, like you say, it's not supposed to be literal. And I'm quite a squeamish person. And it didn't phase me at all on that level. It was just like, oh, I Mm. see what he's doing. Like, he's just going through these metaphors. Yeah. Um, But I can understand, like talking about it from an allegorical perspective some people don't think it works as an allegory because that's all there is um Mm. and it can work on these multiple levels in terms of if you want to focus on more of the climate change aspect or like the artist and muse relationship or like the narcissism of celebrity culture but it doesn't work by itself as just a straightforward text if you see what i mean yeah yeah um no that's totally true like it is completely dependent on you buying into that allegory and if you don't give a shit about the allegory then the movie fails because it's not like there's any like actual normal plot to hang on to yeah so i can say that it succeeded for me because it stayed with me but i also understand why it's failed and with the general audience because if people don't connect with that then what is there to take away from it that yeah. humanity is terrible. I don't know. It would just make yeah. you really depressed and disgusted for no reason. Yeah. I think it's exactly. a shame because Aronofsky clearly had something strong to say here. Mm. Um, and it very much is a cautionary tale about climate change and how we're destroying our earth. But if people don't, yeah. if people don't get that, then it's a failure. Yeah. No, I think it might have overreached in the sense that it's so exaggerated and so extreme that some people are just appalled by it to the point where they're completely resistant to engaging with it on any level beyond the level of feeling outraged by it, Mm. which I think is a legitimate response and I understand that response. But I think for me, the thing I I love the most about Mother is that it can be read in so many different ways and I think all of them are legitimate. Like, my one problem with Mother is the fact that Darren Aronofsky won't shut up about telling people oh, what Mother means. Yeah, I just... And it's like, Darren, stop it. Stop now. I think that's very interesting because I was reading an interview with him and Jennifer Lawrence before the movie came out and he was like, oh, I'm not going to spoon feed it to people. And she was like, maybe people probably should have been given some better preparation. Like, I feel like the film was so badly promoted in terms of... yeah you know actually getting people to grasp what it was about because watching the trailers you think it's going to be rosemary's baby but it's actually more like yeah kafkaesque nightmarish like feeling powerless while humanity destroys itself around you Um, yeah which yeah if you're not prepared for you might not pick up on or you would just like straight up reject 
Yeah. It's kind of like the whole movie has the whole of humanity as the villain. And because everyone watching the film by default is members of that group, then probably a bit weirded out to be like, oh, but I'm not so bad, am I? (laughs) It's not really something you want pushed in your face, you know, to be told, oh, yeah, you're an asshole. But that is kind of what the film does. (laughs) So... Yeah, like I find that funny in a darkly humorous way. Oh, same. I was laughing because yeah. I was just like, oh my god, people are like this. We're all terrible. They are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're all terrible and selfish and greedy. And that's what he's trying to say. You know, he's like, hey, ultimately, even though the film itself ends with like this horrible cycle of destruction, if you take the message on, it is like maybe he's making this film so that we can all try to break the cycle. Yeah. Um, yeah, so maybe it's ultimately hopeful, even if it comes from a very cynical place. Yeah, that's certainly what I like to think. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I am an optimist, often despite myself. And I have to believe that Aronofsky was making a film that was this shocking and this conversation-provoking. Not because he wants to say, yeah, everything sucks and there's nothing we can do about it. But because he wants to say, everything sucks, look the extent to which it sucks look at the extent to which we are all responsible for this and then wake up and actually try to do something about it Mm. i really think that's what he was trying to do with it but yeah i think by using the allegories that he did and using some of the imagery that he did he might have gone too far in order to be truly effective at reaching like a large audience of that message but i do still think that is a really amazing like artistic work Mm. and like as a piece of filmmaking it's just extraordinary like that whole third act like the way the house is collapsing and how the fabric of the reality of the film is just constantly shifting and evolving and changing that is just so incredibly well done and just as someone who loves cinema i am in awe of how that was pulled off it's incredible yeah, it was exhilarating to watch. And when I left the theatre as well, I was just, it was like I had this spring in my step. because so I was like, I just watched something remarkable. Um, mm. Yeah, that I fully understand that other people hate. Um, but it, it made me feel something. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's, you know, that's what it does, right? Whether you feel disgust or excitement or whatever, or a mixture of everything else, that, that's what it's there for. So just embrace it and go with it. Totally. Right, thank you so much for listening. If you got to this point and wanted to listen to us chat about Mother for a little bit, um, I just really wanted to speak about it because it's an extraordinary film. It kind of has a Star Wars link. Donald's in it. <laughs> yes, he's in it for like two minutes. Playing but he's the first very good murderer, you know. I mean, that's kind of tied with Hux, who is also a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's a great performance from him. Bless him, and it and it's a great like acting showcase. Like even though it's so brief, but but yeah, Donald's great, and he I could swear he's been in like fifty million movies recently. At least here in the UK, it's just insane. Mm. Like he was like at a premiere at Leicester Square, like literally three consecutive weeks, because just all his films were premiering at the same time. Yeah, it was insane. Um, but yeah, so thank you for listening to our chat today. Um, we're in very exciting times and the news is really going to start ramping up now because the trailer is very soon apparently um, and yeah there's bound to be a lot of stuff bound up with that and we're going to get a lot of new books next week and yeah so there's going to be all sorts of stuff happening 
but we need to close off here for now. So I am Rachel, and you can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. Where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, bye! Bye!